Good morning, everyone. Glad to see everybody here this morning on Father's Day. So it's good to see that we have our minds on our Heavenly Father. And we're here to study His Word. I hate to break everything up on y'all. I know you are. But anyway, it's time for our class this morning. So thank everyone for being here. Welcome everyone, all our visitors being here. Um, we're looking at Revelation. We're in chapter 16 and we, in our workbook, which there's some in the back if anyone needs any, uh, we're looking at question 10 in chapter 16. Uh, before we get started this morning, if you will, please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you and praise you for this wonderful day you've given us, Father. We thank you for being our salvation, for being the one that loves and cares for us, that sent Jesus for us to save us, Father, so that we can not fear these things that we read and study about in Revelation and in other parts of the Bible. We, we thank you and praise you, Father, for your love and care. We ask that you would lead and guide us in this study, Father. Help us to learn what you want us to know. Help us to draw closer and become more like our Lord every day, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in chapter 16, looking at verses 10 through 21. So I'm going to read those again. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hell fell from no wait. And great hell from heaven fell among men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell since the plague was exceedingly great. 
So we had answered uh, the previous questions on this, question nine, or really just question nine. So we were looking at question 10. Uh, so question 10, what again is said about the response to these judgments? And they're speaking specifically of like verse 11. And that's that they didn't repent, right? If you look at verse 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and sores and did not repent of their deeds. And that's kind of a theme we see here, that they, they do not repent of their deeds and the things they're doing. Now, if we look at question 11, oh, wait, I'm sorry. Yes. Verse 21, yeah. They, all these people who are unrepentant, that are sinful, and they have rebelled against God, they all blame him, curse him. They know where their trouble is coming from. They know the source. But they refuse to do what was right. That, and yet they turn around instead of looking in the mirror and saying, I messed up really bad, and I can turn this around. Instead, they direct their anger and all of this suffering and hatred towards God. Right. They blame God, right? They blame God. They seem to be aware of the source of this judgment. They blame God, but they don't repent of their deeds. They don't take responsibility for their actions that have put them in that position. And, and that's right. They, you notice again in 21, they blaspheme God. So they, they recognize the source. They know where it's coming from, but. In our culture right now, so many say there is no God. There's so many unbelievers and atheists. But yet, if anything bad happens, they're quick. Well, yeah, I mean, they, there's a lot of people who deny God, who are atheists and such, and they deny God. But then so quite a few of them, or at least a number of people who seem to not believe in God, or at least they'll initially say they don't believe in God. When, when trials come, when bad things happen, a lot of times they will turn. And, you know, I've known people who would like, well, you know, we, we, I would, uh, you know, I'd like your prayers on this. Or suddenly they they have some belief, but then the minute everything's good again, they go right back. So they acknowledge there's God, even though they claim there is no God. Right. Yet in all of that craziness and anger, they are having to admit that there's God. So yeah, in some ways, sometimes society does acknowledge God, even in their rebellion against God. So yeah, that's that's true. And I think that's kind of what this is pointing out, their rebellion against God. And that's what Babylon tends to in general represent. There's a, there's a number of things we'll get into in the next chapter as far as Babylon, but in general there is this idea that uh Babylon is, you know, people rebelling, doing their own thing, their own pleasures, all that sort of thing and not not acknowledging God, not following God. Does anybody have anything else on that? Yes, Dan. Well, it's not really on Revelation, but most atheists, they don't believe in God. They certainly believe in the devil most of them. They know all kinds of stuff about the devil. 
how he acts. But God created Lucifer too. So they're they're uh, hitting themselves. Right. As they say they don't believe in God, I think they they are kidding themselves. And then. That is crazy that some people would know that much about Satan and not know about God. That's weird. That, right, that, that would imply that they've been, you know, again, deceived in some way. And, you know, that's like the people that claim to be Satanists and they say, well, it's not really that we believe in Satan. It's really just that we believe we should be able to do what we want to do. That's what it really comes down to. It's like we worship ourselves. So, I mean, but that's, again, kind of off topic, right? But but that is a sign. I mean, that's a part of this, people who are unrepentant and won't follow God and rebelling. Um, so, question number 11. Upon what was the sixth bowl poured out? Well, it says specifically just what you said, the river Euphrates, right? And what happened, huh? And it dried up. And it dried up. That was the next thing. What happened? It dried up, right? Now, this made the way for the kings from the east, it says. Now, this could be, if you remember your history, this could be a little bit of a historical thing where... There were invaders from the east that came in and helped destroy and sack Rome. I mean, different. there were different, how would, how would you say it? There were different cycles of these things happening over time. There were different, was it Mongols? I don't remember all that as well as some people probably do. But nonetheless, there's a number of different uh, invaders, you know, fought against Rome at different times. So, yes, ma'am? Regardless of where we try to apply that, I think, mind of someone in the land of Israel would, would look historically well, you know, Babylon came from over there, and, or, or whatever threats are sort of stopped a little bit by the river Euphrates over to the east, and if that's dried up then there's free rain to come into the land so whatever the threat is, that's representative of God's bringing forth the ability for these enemies to come in and destroy Right, that's a good way to say it. If you think of that river or a river as being a kind of a ward against your enemies on the other side of the river, then that being dried up would open the door for these enemies, whatever they are, whoever they are, to come in. So, yeah, that's a good way to think of that. And and that's basically what it's saying. So the way of the kings of the east, you know, kings of the, from the east would be prepared. Does anybody have anything else on that? All right. So, question 12, what did John see next? Like Kermit? <laughs> There's like three frogs, right? And it's three unclean spirits like frogs, so I'm being a little silly, but three unclean spirits like frogs coming of the mouths, uh, coming out of the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. One thing to remember is frogs are considered unclean. That was one of the things about the uh, frog curse in Egypt, which is kind of might make you think about a little bit. It's not exactly the same, but um, frogs are considered unclean. And this uh, seems to relate to the demonic 
false trinity again because it mentions the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and their false teaching and leading people astray. And, you know, Jesus warns us to be aware of all of this kind of false teaching and bad things. Actually, we're reminded of that a lot in the epistles, too. Uh, but I was thinking of Jesus' letters to the churches specifically, where he warns of a letting false doctrine in. So it's it's the idea of unclean false teaching being presented. So we want to be aware of that. Does anybody have anything on that? All right. I know this is a... Um, these chapters uh, have been kind of short, and I think 16 is fairly short, but I actually have quite a bit to come on this. If we look at question 13, the, the simple question about these frogs, what, what were these? If you go to the, just what were they? It's referring to like verse 14. Spirits of demons. And yeah, they're performing great signs and they did have a mission, right? What was their mission? Well, yeah, it says to gather the kings. Yeah. Yeah. To gather the kings of the earth to battle. Uh, on the great day of God Almighty, right? Or to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So, and this, this kind of shows Satan's ultimate goal. He wants to gather people to fight against God, to be against God. And you can even see that, you know, in society nowadays. I'm sure you could see it throughout history and in probably all societies. Um, and there's a war, you know, going on now, a spiritual war, and it will continue to go on until the Lord returns. And Satan wants to draw people to fight on his side. And he really deceives them. He's already, I mean, he's already lost. He knows he's lost. He knows, he knows that. And he's just doing this out of, out of spite or hate for God and for God's people. Yes. Right, performing great signs to deceive people and to draw them, draw people to them. If you look back in, and I didn't mean to, I didn't really think of mentioning this, but if you look back at the end of chapter four of Matthew, the last few verses there, Jesus had been preaching and had been doing great signs and miracles and had drawn all these people to him. And that's right before he does the Sermon on the Mount, right? So they're trying to imitate that type of thing, doing these signs and miracles, trying to draw people to them. Yes? You see that today on TV when the TV evangelists will perform so-called miracles and they knock people down and they come back up and they're healed. And that's sort of, in their mind, a miracle. And so it draws a lot of followers because of that. Right. If they, if you believe in those TV evangelists you mentioned, if you believe in those things that they claim to do, they claim that they do these miracles. And and but I've never actually seen them do a miracle. I'll just say that. I'm not trying to be mean. It's just true. Yes, Eddie. I knew a person. I'm not going to say who it was that claimed that, that she was killed by Oral Roberts. 
at least three different kinds of sinuses. She had really bad sinuses. But they always came back. She always had that pain in the stomach. And I said, don't you think if God healed you, that pain would ever come back? Oh, <laughs> that's yeah. when God heals, it's healed. Well, from you know, and and they they use these false things to convince people that they've been healed, that they've been all of these things happen, and they don't think it out. Right. Uh, the the examples we see of healing in the Bible do not come back. No. I mean, Jesus, you know, made the blind to see, and the guy didn't go back blind, as far as we know. Yes, Pam. The healing done in today's world is not a physical healing, it's a spiritual healing of our sins. Mm -hmm. Right. Nowadays, what we're really talking about is more of a spiritual healing of our sin. We we consider ourselves all, even as Christians, we're, we're still sinners, right? We're still sick with this sin, and... The cure is Jesus. He's the great physician, and he's he's the cure for that. Yes, Dan, did you have something? Right. God is just as powerful as ever, and he can. I, I believe that he can do anything. Of course, he can heal you. Cookie? I've often wondered if the faith healers really work, why are they not in hospitals healing people? Right. If, if you really had that kind of thing, wouldn't you go to where you were needed? And I think that's where God would send you. I, I do. So, I mean, Jesus was healing all types of people. They didn't make any distinction between those people, even uh, even people who weren't Jewish, even though he said a few times he wasn't there for them, but he would still heal them. He would still do things for them and help them. Does anybody have anything else on that? Yes, Dan. Well, I couldn't tell you what chapter it's in, but Lord Jesus was doing sermons and people would come to him and uh, the sickness of the diseases and it says in there he healed them all. Yes, he healed them all. And one example is that where I was talking about the end of uh, Matthew 4. That's just one example. There's, I'm sure there's other examples. But um, yeah, he healed them of all these different diseases, all kinds of things. And we see a, a lot of examples of that. And uh, what John even makes mention of, there's just too many things that he did. You can't even list it all. So who knows how big a book would have to be to cover all that. So if you looked at every individual thing. Okay, so if we look at question 14, what warning and beatitude did Jesus give at this point? And they're talking about verse 15, if that helps. He says that familiar warning, right? Yep. He says, Behold, I come as a thief. I am coming as a thief. And then the beatitude he gives us is, Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now, this, this reminds us of a judgment that was given on Israel. Amos chapter 2, verse 16 the most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. And this this idea, though, of, of losing your garments, of being naked, does that make you think of anything spiritually, spiritually in the Bible? Yes, Matt? Well, 
couple things that we're to be clothed with Christ, number one. That's a good one. There's also the passage that talks about you know having the wedding garment and you're there. Mm-hmm. And then if you don't have the wedding garment, why are you here and you're cast out? And so we, we need to belong to Christ. Right. We need to be clothed in Christ at all times. That's that's a good one. The only other thing I was thinking of was the whole armor of God. Again, making sure that we are prepared and that we are aware that spiritually prepared is what we're talking about. And he's warning us to be spiritually prepared. Um, matter of fact, that's what all of those are about, whether it be the the women with the oil lamps or whatever. All those are about being spiritually prepared, not to be caught unaware. So, um does anybody have anything else on that? Okay. Oh, yeah, Rachel? Um, <clears throat> back to Revelation chapter 2, during those seven letters to the seven churches, and I forget which one. I was trying to look it up real fast. Which, which letter to the church was the one where he said, you are blind and you are naked? Oh, that is rich, the... But you're really poor. Right, that's the ones that thought they were rich. Yeah. And I can't remember off the top of my head which church that was, but I'm sure we can find it. Sardis, Sardis, some had didn't defile the garments. And he who overcomes will be clothed in white garments. That's in a three, five. I'm not sure if that's exactly the one. Oh, let's see. Um, And Laodicea talks about yeah, this doesn't have the same. My other, my uh, the the a Bible I use a lot online. It uh, it has these titles and uh, whichever church thought they were rich. Wait, is this it? Um, okay, I think it's the one to the church, and I'm gonna say this wrong, Laodicea or something like that, Laodicea. Uh, if you look at Revelation three, down at. Um, Verse 17, it says, you say I am rich, I've grown wealthy, um, so that you may become rich. Let's see, but it says, uh, you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And I might be looking at a different uh, translation, but that's the right one. So it's in chapter 3, down there, the church of, well, I won't say that again. <laughs> but anyway, they think they're rich, they think they have it all, and the Lord is telling them, no, you you don't. You're following the wrong things. So, right. So it does remind us of that, and that's a good one to remember. Yes. All right, so we're looking at chapter 22, 14, which we're not to yet, but let's look at this for a second. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Okay. Um, 14 says, blessed are those who wash their robes. Are you looking at 22 or am I looking at the wrong chapter? Oh, the translation there's okay. I'm looking at New King James. Just a minute. Well, let's let's go back to my other. Um, let's see. It says, "Blessed ah, blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life." Right. 
So yeah, there's a translation difference, which we'll get to when we get there. I didn't realize that was there yet, but that's one of those interesting things. So that happens. But yeah, that refers to keeping your robes clean, right? And spotless. So staying, staying true to the Lord, that doesn't mean we're, that we're without sin, but it means that when we sin, we repent, and he imputes his righteousness. He gives us his righteousness. That's the trade he made on the cross. Yes? There's a lot of times throughout the Old Testament where we see God tells them, or the leader that God appointed, tells them, you know, wash yourself, put on clean garments before you come before me. Or if they were guilty of sin, they needed to wash and be clean before they came before him. Right. Well, even um, if we look back at Pharaoh and Joseph, when Joseph was brought out of prison or wherever they were keeping him, and which it didn't sound like a horrible, awful place, but when they brought him out of there to be presented to Pharaoh, they cleaned him up. So, yeah, there's this thing before you're presented to royalty, you would be cleaned up and attired properly and, and look your your best, so to speak, you know. So, and that's the same idea that we would be presentable to God with our white robes. So, so if we look at question 15, where were the kings of earth gathered? And it, yeah, it says Armageddon. What'd you have, Matt? Or Armageddon. Oh, okay. Um, the place, they, they say to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon, right? And this is my understanding was this, this, uh, relates to the plane of, I'm going to say it wrong again, probably Megiddo or something like that. Megiddo, Megiddo. And, um, this was the site of some battles that had occurred in the past. Um, it's probably more of a symbolic or spiritual reference, but still. This was a place where you read back in 2 Kings, uh, Josiah was killed there. Um, it's in chapter 23, verses 29 and 30. In his days, Pharaoh, Necho, king of Egypt, went to the aid of the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates, and King Josiah went against him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo when he confronted him. And then his servants moved his body in a chariot from Megiddo, brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him and made him king in his father's place. And yeah, I'm just not good with some of these names. But anyway, you get the idea. And then in Judges, it was mentioned again, the kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan fought in Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they took no spoils of silver. And that's in Judges chapter 5, verses 19. So it's mentioned in a few places where battles have happened in the past. So, yes, Matt. <clears throat> a skeptic could look at this and say, well, Megiddo was a plain. Right. And this Bible here says the mountain in Megiddo. So that's not even a thing. So your Bible's false <laughs> or something like that. But I think, I think John is using this language to shock us into... Of course, I'm not that familiar with the geography over there. I had to read about this, but it would be shocking to people that live over there. Like, what? That's not a no mountain there. I think he's trying to shock them into, 
what's the point you just said? Like, there's the symbolism behind that. Right. It's not literally, oh, over there in the ghetto, you know, the big mountain that's not there. It's not about that place. It's about what it means. Right. I, I think this the whole idea is that there's going to be this big battle, and this place is more symbolic. And, yeah, but... There, um, I had read something that said there was a Mount Megiddo, or at least it, uh, what would you say, implied there was a Mount Megiddo. I, I don't know if there is or not. I, I'm not a big uh, geographic person either, as far as that goes. So, does anybody have anything else on that? All right. So, if we look at uh, question sixteen. Upon what was the seventh bowl poured out? The air. It was poured out on the air, right? And what happened? So, a loud voice from the temple of heaven, right? From the throne proclaimed, it is done. And I don't know about you, that reminds me of Jesus on the cross saying it's finished, right? So, and what did Jesus' death signify the end of? It's complete. Well, yeah, it's complete. It signified the end of the old law, the Old Testament, that, that age, if you will, that period of time for us, since God is really out of time, but for us, He had completed his mission, right, and it, it ended out those things. The veil was ripped, and people would have access to the kingdom of God, right? I mean, that was that was a big change, a huge, well, huge change. But so, with that kind of thought in mind, what what might this signify? What might this signify the end of? Well, yeah, it would signify maybe the end of this phase of life, this earth. It's the end of God's wrath for sure, because that's what's going on here. These bowls are representing God's final, complete wrath. Um, and again, it's saying that his plan is accomplished. His kingdom will be completely established with him as sovereign. Does anybody have anything on that? All right, so if we look at question 17, what then occurred after this? It is done. Well, right, he's, yeah, he said that in, the, in, the, in verse uh, 17, right? So, but we're looking, like, past that, what, what occurred after he said that? Yes, Dan? Right, there were... Noises, thunderings, lightnings, a mighty earthquake. The great city was divided into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Great Babylon was remembered before God uh, to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And great hell from heaven fell upon men. Yes, man. It's interesting when it says God remembered. That makes me think of when God remembered his people and heard their cry like in Egypt, you know. Right. He went and delivered them, but that's not what this is saying. He remembered Babylon and how wicked they are, and he remembered the 
Yes, at this point, yeah, he's remembering Babylon, the, the wickedness, not, not like remembering his people, how they needed to be delivered, but, you know, he's remembering here to give them, to give Babylon his, his wrath, and that is a different thing. Similar in the way it's said. Now, yes? I was thinking of a scripture, I don't know if this goes along with it or not, but it says at the end that people are going to go to the mountains for safety, but if the mountains have disappeared, there won't be any safety. Right, now we had read that. That was earlier on the earlier trumpet judgments where the people fled to the mountains and the, I think, caves, whatever, to hide uh, for safety. But here, you're right, here there's a change. Here the mountains are no more. They're in, there is no safety. There is no escape from God's wrath. This is his final, complete, full wrath, right? This is that final judgment. This is a judgment we don't want people to go through. This is what we keep trying to tell people. We don't want them to go through anything like this. Whether this be, whether you think of this as more of a spiritual thing or an actual physical thing or whatever, we don't want them to end up in hell and go through that kind of judgment. We don't want them to face the wrath of God. Um, now we'll see more details about Babylon because that's, that's going to be really the subject of the next chapter. But, you know, what, what does Babylon seem to represent here? I'll say it that way. Yes, ma'am. Well, jumping ahead next chapter a little bit. <laughs> I think uh, Rome and the, the world empire of Rome uh, talks about the seven hills, I think. Yes. Yeah, in Babylon, in the way it's referred to a lot here, um, it does, and it would. Back then, it would definitely represent to them uh, Rome and the Roman society and the way things were doing, the way things, the way they were doing things. So, um, in general, to me, it reminds me, you know, of man's rebellious society in general down through the ages and that, you know, they, they align themselves, whether through being deceived or on purpose, they align themselves with Satan. Now, just as a reference, let's see, this hell that they're talking about, let me back up to where I can look at that verse again. The, the hell that's being referred to, well, maybe I didn't go back far enough. Let me see. All right, the hailstone about the weight of a talent, right? Now, a talent... The smallest measurement I found for a talent would be around 60 pounds. 60 pounds. So a hailstone of 60 pounds would be like just having Frosty the Snowman dropped on you, I guess. It would just be huge. Just boom. You know, except it'd probably be hard and hurt because a hailstone is harder, right? But anyway, that's just for an idea of what, what's being referred to. And this, this, these verses, they appear to be the final battle or the battle of Armageddon. And it's it's gone over so fast that you might almost missed it. I mean, you might miss it. And it's a lot like the battles where God fought for Israel back in the past. If you look at Joshua chapter 10, verse 11, and it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. So in a way, it's not really anything new that God is going to do this battle if people are foolish enough to think they're actually going to fight him. 
he's going to use the same tactic that has worked before. So, and it's consistent also, so. But anyway, I just thought that was, that was interesting. Um, if we look in Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, a description of the day of the Lord and, and the battle that's occurring. I'm not going to read all of this. You can read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read like the first two verses and the last two. Uh, the first two verses, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, like the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. And then in the last couple of verses, this is about God's army. This is still in Joel chapter 2. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark. And the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? So, yes. Uh, the earthquake that happened here, it reminded me of what happened after Jesus died. In Matthew 27, verses 50 to 56. Right. Where the earthquake said it split the rock, and people, the tombs were opened. And yes, a number of things happened after Jesus said it's finished. Uh, there was an earthquake, like you said, some of the tombs opened, and, and, and the dead rose briefly, not a complete resurrection like we think of, but. There was that that happened. So, yeah, and it does, it can remind you of that. I can see that. Um, I guess we're out of time here for this morning. Did anyone have anything else on that, though, before we? All right. Okay, well, thank you all very much for your time and attention. We'll pick up with uh, the last question here, 18, next week.